All right, John 10, 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your precious word. It is holy, it is righteous and true, a solid and firm foundation. Lord, there is instruction here. There is purpose here. There is meaning here. And I just pray, Lord, right now that that as these seeds are sown, they fall upon fertile ground. Give us humility in our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. Father, I submit myself to you, your willing vessel. Use me, Lord, as only you can. Work that miracle that through the, the foolishness of preaching men believe. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. The thief comes not but to kill, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, if you came looking for a Christmas message this morning about the manger, I'm very sorry to disappoint you. Because as soon as I mentioned, turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, and let's look at Christmas story, everybody would tune me out because I've heard that before. So I don't typically do holiday-type sermons. What we're going to do today is talk about something, I don't want to say more profound because it's not, but it's the end game, if you will. The end game. What God began in the manger, he completed on the cross and will be finished one day in eternity. But what, what have I told you that in spite of all that, of the victory that, that Jesus had, that God, when he sent his son, and the, the victory that he had on the cross, and the, the eternal glory that he has waiting for us, in spite of all that, you still have an enemy. You still have an enemy that has turned every last ounce of his might against you. He wants you out of the picture. He wants every victory that you have ever had. He doesn't want you to have it. He wants to claim it for his own. Amen. Amen. He wants every treasure. He wants every joy. Yes. Let, let me rephrase that. He doesn't want your treasure and your joy for himself. He just doesn't want you to have them. He right. doesn't want you to have them. Yes. This enemy is dead set on keeping you from what God has for you. Amen. He doesn't want you to have anything that is of any real or lasting value. He wants you to be in love with the counterfeit, but the joke. He wants you to be hopelessly lost, and he absolutely wants you to be miserable. So miserable, in fact, that you cannot even imagine what it would be like for anything to be different, Amen. for it to be any other way. And so your misery becomes your comfort and your treasure you meant your misery. You begin to look at it and hold on to it. I, I just can't imagine life without this pain. He wants you to love your pain so much that you feel lost without it. Amen. So much that you, when you find some kind of comfort, it's, it's twisted comfort in your pain. He wants you to be blinded from what is truly good. Amen. So that when it is offered to you, when it is shown to you, You turn it away because you cannot see the value beyond your own misery. I'm not speaking in platitudes. It's the absolute truth. People love their pain. I deal in in technology at the school. I've told you this before. I I go to a, a teacher and try to hand her a brand new, fast, lightning speed computer that will just, I mean, it will make her life better. I mean, 
the one that she has, you can turn it on, go get breakfast and a cup of coffee, sit and meditate for a while, and come back and you might be at the login screen. It takes that long to boot up. It just takes, it's a painful process to use. But when I go to say, here, take this shiny new chrome-plated, sleek, you know, fast thing that will make your life better. Oh, no, I can't give up. You don't understand. They love their pain. I'm making light of it, but it's the truth. We get so comfort in our own misery, and that is where your enemy wants you. He has set himself to the task of taking things from you of stealing from you, of killing you, and destroying you. I remember when I was growing up, and I believed that heaven, you know, our end game, had this concept of it, that it was this never-ending church service, and that we would be all floating around in these intangible ghost-like bodies, and all we would be doing is just singing songs all day long, all day, every day, Forever and ever. And I remember not being very motivated by that. Are you motivated by that? Does that sound appealing to you? These intangible, ghostly, disembodied things floating around doing nothing but, well, just, just, what are you going to do today? We're going to sing some more. What's going on today? We're going to, more singing. Well, we sang that song already. Well, there's a, we got a new one today. We're going to sing a different one. All day, every day. I remember not being very motivated by that. In fact, I wasn't very, very motivated to go to heaven at all. Not that I wanted to go to the other place, because I had a very clear and vivid picture that that was not the place you wanted to be. Amen. But given, you know, I had two options, either heaven or hell. I mean, I'll take heaven, but it didn't sound that appealing. Amen. I'll be honest with you. It didn't sound very appealing. It wasn't a great motivator. Didn't motivate me to press on. What did motivate me was the fear of going to hell. Anybody been there? Amen. I had a very vivid picture of what hell would be like. I mean, they, that boy, the, you know, growing up in a Baptist, we had we we first started my first memories of church were an old Baptist church, and and hell is a popular topic. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna scare you out of it, buddy. You don't, you don't want to go to that place. So I had a pretty vivid picture of hell. And I knew I did not want to go there for an absolute fact. Absolute certainty. I did not want to be there. And if my only alternative was heaven, I guess that's where I'd go. But I didn't have any joy in it. It didn't motivate me to press on. We call that negative reinforcement. You know, you do this because if you don't do this, something really bad will happen. It's negative reinforcement. If Satan can cloud our view of heaven. Oof. There's no joy in that kind of approach. There's no desire in that kind of approach. There's no longing for what's coming next. There's no yearning. There's no excitement in anticipation for it. A motivator was fear. And that's, that was a view I had of heaven. That, that's supposed to be the end game. That's, that's the crowning jewel. That's the, I finished the race and I fought the fight. I've crossed the line and, and this is my reward. And that was the view. And my reward wasn't, wasn't, oh, you get to spend eternity doing whatever eternity brings, but you don't have to go to hell. They're not going to sentence you to hell. That's fear. That's not joy. Satan can cloud our view of heaven. He can steal our joy, kill our faith, destroy our blessed hope. And those are things which are supposed to endure according to 1 Corinthians 13. 
If he can diminish our joy for heaven, how much more easily then can he diminish our fear of hell? And then you have no motivator left. If, if your joy of heaven is destroyed and all you have is fear of hell, it's easy to diminish the fear of hell. Just, just tell someone it's, it's a lie. It doesn't exist. Amen. And when you have no, no joy for heaven and no fear for hell, then you have no motivator. And so you just stop. And that's precisely where he wants you. Just stop. Just stop. So over the last three weeks, we have established, hopefully settled in your hearts, that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. Yes. It is true in its history, it is accurate in its predictions, it is flawless in its wisdom. This is a book that is to be consulted and it is to be trusted. It's very important that we establish this early on because everything that we know about the end game. Everything that we know about heaven and our eternal reward is found in that book. Amen. If we don't take the Bible as infallible truth, then what basis do we have for believing in any sort of afterlife, much less in a very real heaven or a very real hell? One of Satan's greatest tools against us is deception, church. Amen. He wants you to be deceived. He wants you focused on something that isn't true. The thief comes to steal. And he will steal your joy. Mm -hmm. Satan, the great deceiver, is actively looking for ways to take from you. He wants to take everything that you have. Amen. Everything of any real value. He will lie to you to get it. Amen. He will bargain and swindle and twist and deceive. He will show you pictures and images that satisfy your own desires. Maybe they're desires that no one else knows that you have, but he knows. Your enemy knows. And he'll sell you these images. He'll sell them to you at a great cost. Images and dreams and fantasies. He'll take you to the bank, convince you to empty out everything in your account just so you can get whatever illusion it is that he is offering to you. And then he will turn around and hand you a lie. All the while, you'll be so caught up in that lie you don't even realize you've been robbed. Amen. You've been taken for a fool. Your enemy, he is a swindler. And a con man, he is a charlatan. He preys on the weak and on the strong. Don't think you're above him. You're above his, his wiles. Amen. He studies you and he observes you to find weakness. Any place, anything that he can use to get a foothold, any crack in your armor, he's looking for it. Any selfish desire, any worldly lust, any prideful intent, once he sees any evidence of any of those things, he begins his attack and his charade. And then he comes with his song and his dance to steal your attention away from your true joy, your true treasure, try to lure you to be, to be bound up with things of lesser value. And then when the lesser things don't fulfill, when, when they don't live up to the song and dance, to the charade, then you're left feeling empty. And what happens to your joy? It's diminished. It's weakened. You've traded true joy for the lie, and now you're left holding the bag. You have been robbed. The thief comes to steal. He comes to kill. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to kill your faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you know that the very... Did you ever consider this? The very first question that was ever asked in the Bible came from Satan. Satan. 
Did God say that you shouldn't eat of the trees of the garden? Genesis chapter 3. From the very first time we see Satan in the scripture, our enemy, the accuser, his purpose was to instill doubt, faith-killing doubt. It's no wonder that Jesus called him the father of lies, John chapter 8, 44. He said he was a murderer from the beginning and he abode not in the truth. He didn't live in the truth because there was no truth in him. And when he speaks, it's a lie and he speaks of his own. It's his own language because he is the father of lies. Everything he says to you is a lie. It's designed as a poison dart against your faith. Do you know he's whispering in your ear all the time? You know that internal monologue that you have that tells you that you're not, you're not worth it or you messed up and there's no hope for you? That, that's a lie. Amen. And it is designed to kill your faith. You messed up once again. I, I joke with my wife. It, it's a joke, but there's some truth in it, and I have, to, I have to battle it all the time. I never make the right choice. I, I, n- never, when I do anything under my own power, is it the right decision, ever. I mean, from making the, the turn on the road to... Let me give you an example. We did Spirit of Giving yesterday. And I had rented a U-Haul for us to put the stuff in because we need a big truck to put everything in. So we go down there, we do all the thing, and we come back and unload it, and I'm taking it on its way to be delivered back to where it's got to go. And you know you have to turn the U-Haul in with as much gas as you picked it up in, right? So I went to the gas station to put some gas in it. My wife pulled up to the pump next to me, but her card wouldn't work in the pump, so she went inside. Well, I, my card worked fine. I filled the thing up, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and she's still inside. I get in the, the truck, put the key in, turn the ignition on. I don't crank it. You know how you turn it in the on position so that all the gauges come on? I just wanted to make sure I put enough gas in that when I returned it, I, I had it at the right amount. So I'm still waiting, and she hadn't come out yet. So I thought, what's wrong with her? I get out of the car, lock the door, shut the door, go, and, and then I realized as I got to the end of the U-Haul, I just locked the key in the cab and it's turned on now the place I rented it is literally two blocks up the street literally two blocks up the street I locked the key in the, I never and I said to myself you never make nothing ever works for you it never works for you that's yeah, right I'm speaking it well let me tell you what happens when you speak it like that so we call you haul and they're gracious enough to send out Someone, a locksmith, to come, you know, pump the door open and get in. He worked on it forever. Took forever to get there. About half an hour we waited. Um, And then, so he gets it done, gets the door open, shake his hand. Thank you so much. He gets on his way. I get in the car to start it. It won't even turn over. It's deader than a doornail. Now, it sat there probably 30 minutes with the lights on. I don't know why that would kill the battery. But it did. So it's there. So I had to call U-Haul again. Oh, well, it'll be another 45 minutes to have someone else come out there. I had two service calls just to take this thing two blocks down the road. I was in a struggle yesterday. In a struggle. He's lying to me the whole time. You can't do anything right. You can't do anything right. And then he gives me evidence. You can't do anything right. I did one thing right. I said, Lord, I'm yours, and whatever you want to do with this day, it's okay. <laughs> Everything he says is a lie. If he can sow enough seeds of unbelief and doubt into you, then he can choke out your faith and he can kill it. Amen. 
Remember the parable of the soils that Jesus told about the seed that's cast on the wayside and the, the rocky ground and the thorny ground and then the good soil? You know, the ground that the seed landed in, the thorny ground, it took root. But there were other seeds there. There were other plants that grew up and choked it, that choked the seed of faith and killed it. And he's, what do he say those things were? Those thorns and thistles. Those were the deceitfulness of riches and they were the cares of this world. See, it wasn't the riches that killed the seed. It was the deceitfulness that killed faith. We get lulled into a false sense of, of self-sufficiency when we get plenty. You know, we have no need for God because all my needs are already met thanks to the riches. You see a doubt. There's a seed of doubt there now. Satan uses the cares of this world to kill our faith. All the things that you have to focus on, all the things that you have to, to devote your attention to, trials and difficulties and tragedies, locking the key in the U-Haul. The battery won't, the car won't start. He uses all the things that happen to us to cause doubt. You know, if God were really God and if, and if you were really His, you wouldn't be going through this stuff. If He can get you, to you if He can't get to you through your greed, the deceitfulness of riches, then He's going to get to you through your struggle. Amen. Your enemy is always on the move. Don't, don't uh, tune me out. Amen. He's always on the move. Yes, your enemy is always pressed against you. Ever pressed Amen. against you. Amen. He's looking for a way to steal your joy, to kill your faith, and destroy your blessed hope. If your hope is not secured, if it is not solid and firm and unshakable and immovable, then it can be destroyed. Daniel 8.25, he says, through his policy, he's talking about the deceiver, through his policy also shall he cause craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. Your enemy is crafty. He will dazzle you with tricks and he will deceive you with the sleight of his hand. This, this, is, this is powerful language here. To tell us that we need to be careful and cautious and weary about what's going on. He will make himself look wonderful. Like a man that should be trusted. He will offer you illusions of peace and prosperity and he will destroy you with those. If I give up this... And I chase after that. I can see that. I can see the leisure and the luxury. I can see that. I'll be happy with that. It's so interesting that historically speaking, every time Israel decided to sway from the Lord and, and follow after and prostitute themselves against, with other gods, it was during a time of prosperity. Amen. During a time of, of peace when nobody was attacking them. When they didn't have any cares. And here, here in Daniel, he clearly says that, that peace... Some translations say prosperity. It's the same sense of the word, without a time of conflict or struggle, peace and plenty. The enemy uses those as weapons against us to destroy us. He attacks us by getting us to shift our source of hope from Christ and eternity with him to something else, something lesser, something temporary. And when our hope is in Christ is lost, then so are we. Now listen, I don't mean to build up the devil to be a larger threat than what he is, okay? The fact of the matter is that God has all power over our enemy. Christ has already won the victory against sin and death. I know this because he told me in his word. We have no need to fear the enemy, but the apostle Peter warned us that we are to be sober, 1 Peter 5.8, and vigilant. 
Why? Because the adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Be sober and vigilant. He wouldn't tell us those things if the enemy didn't pose a very real threat. Is he able to be defeated? Absolutely. But if we're not mindful, we will fall to his tricks and we'll allow ourselves to be taken into bondage by defeat. The thing is, so many people are in bondage and they don't even know it. Again, they're, they're just wrapped up in the misery. They like wear it like a comfortable blanket. This is where I'm happy in my pain. They don't understand the freedom they have in Jesus Christ because they've been blinded to it. You have an enemy, folks, and he wants to destroy you. Amen. Amen. He'll do that in the most subtle ways. He'll deceive you, and if your hope isn't secured, if your faith isn't strong, if your joy is not serious, he will stand a real chance at winning. Let's see if I can illustrate this for you. In, in 1952, there was a swimmer named Florence Chadwick. Now she stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean on a certain day just off Catalina Island. And she was determined to swim to the shore of mainland California from this island. Now she had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. So she was an accomplished swimmer. She was strong and tested in what she was doing. The weather was foggy that day and chilly that day. In fact, she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. You know, as a swimmer tries one of these great feats, they'll have, they'll have rescue boats and, and a coach in a boat, and they'll, they'll row along beside her just in case something happens. The fog was so thick she couldn't barely even see them, and it was cold. And there were times that she felt like giving up. In the, in the middle of all of this, this fog, as dense as it was, and the waves crashing like they were, she managed to swim 15 hours straight. Hard swimming for 15 hours. There were times when she wanted to give up. She'd gone as far as she thought she could go. So she would call out a few times. She'd call out and say, I, I want to be taken out of the water. I think I've, I've done what I can do. But her mother was in one of those rowboats was rowing along beside her. Her mother was her coach and her cheerleader. And she was rowing along beside her, and her daughter called out and said, I think I'm, I'm getting to the, my limit. I'm, I'm reaching the end of my rope. I, I don't know if I can go any further. Her mother would call out to her and say, maybe you're close. You're, you're getting so close. You can do it. You can make it. Well, it finally came to a point where Florence, the swimmer, was physically and emotionally exhausted. Her body was in pain. She was weakened with the struggle and she felt defeated. She could not go anymore, so she stopped swimming. She just stopped. She had heard her mother's words of affirmation, calling out to her, telling her, baby, you're, you're close, you can do this, you can do this. Her words of assurance, but the fog and the haze kept her from seeing. Her joy had been overshadowed by pain and exhaustion. Her faith had taken a beating in the fog and the waves. And she eventually gave up hope. She stopped. She gave up. After such an enormous effort, 15 hours straight swimming, a valiant struggle, she said to herself, I just can't go anymore. I can't see the shore. I can't even see the boat. So she stopped. And they pulled her out of the water. 
It wasn't until she was on the boat and she could get her head above the waves and the fog that she could see that the shore was less than half a mile away. There was a news conference that she did the next day. And at the news conference, she said, all I could see was the fog. If I could have seen the shore, I think I would have made it. I think I would have made it. Think about what she said. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I've swam 15 hours in my body. I felt like I couldn't do anything else. There was fog all around me, though. I couldn't see the shore. If I could have just seen the shore, the finish line, I could have... I could have mustered the strength. I could have made it. It occurred to me that that may be true for many of us. Amen. After a long and tiresome struggle, after you've given all that you think you have to give, after you have fought and worked and suffered and bled, it is not lost on me that there are many in this room who could old enough to be my parents. Some of you old enough to be my grandparents. You've seen it. You've fought it. You've bled through it. You've wept through it. After you've given and sacrificed and served, you've taken beatings along the way. You've, it's not been an easy road. There have been losses. There have been defeats. There were wrong turns. Lord knows I've made a few. Maybe some of you trusted the wrong people and they hurt you. And the most hurtful thing about that is that some of the wrong people that you trusted were the very ones that shook your hand and hugged your neck when you walked into church every day. You fought your way through one fight after another. And when you came through one of those long struggles, you finally have a sense of accomplishment like, ah, I've got this behind me. I've I've made some progress. I finally have a sense of, of victory. And you lift up your head to see how far you've Come and how far you have to go and all you can see is the fog. There's still no end in sight. So you keep swimming and you keep struggling and you you keep going, but then there's there's a pain in your side. It's a double over kind of pain. And every move that you make, every breath that you take puts you in agony. You've been hurt again. Maybe you lost your job and you can't seem to get back on your feet. You can't find your stride again. Maybe the doctor told you that you need to have chemotherapy. Maybe on her way around the loop, she glanced at her cell phone and ran into a stopped vehicle. Maybe he had an unexpected, unexplained seizure in the middle of the night and never woke up. Maybe she lost the baby or maybe he never came home from work. Maybe you've been struggling with something else for for years and years. Pain, disappointment, at every turn it just seems to get worse. Can you put anything else on me? There seems to be no answer, no end in sight. I look up, I lift my head and all I see is the fog. The pain of it all is so intense and it won't go away and it's a fight just to keep fighting. So with sweat on your brow and and tears running down your cheeks, you look up once more and all you see is the fog. And you say, you know what? I'm done. I don't think I can go anymore. Get me out of this water. I'm tired of swimming in this pool. I want to go somewhere else where the water is not so rough. 
You can't even see the boat that's supposed to be with you because the fog is so thick and you're calling out just hoping that someone is there to hear you. I want out of this water. Can anybody hear me? I don't think I can go anymore. And this, you have a familiar voice? Voice inside you? Voice from this word? A voice through the fog and it says, hang in there. He says, hang in there. There's not much further to go and I'm, I'm right here. I told you I'd never leave you. I'd never forsake you. I'm here. Just keep going. You're, you're almost there. The thing is, as comforting as that should be, as, as reassuring as that ought to be, it, it should give us strength. It should make us want to press through, even in the pain, even in the fatigue. Hold, hold on. You know, he, he told me, I'm almost there. He told me that he would be with me. The truth is that if all you can see is the fog and all you can feel are the waves crashing against you, you begin to wonder if the shore is really even there. You see? Yeah, I can hear you speaking. I can hear you speaking. But I can't see it. And I can't see you. I've done this for so long and I'm tired. And I'm too hurt to continue. And so you just stop swimming. I wonder if anyone but me has ever been in a place where you just wanted to stop swimming. Amen. You know, someone... Uh, said something to me yesterday that just took the wind out of my sails. I mean, it, it crushed me to the point I didn't want to do this anymore. It just, it just crushed me. God, get me out of this water because I'm tired of swimming in it. The fog has settled in and I cannot see the shore and I'm hurt and I'm defeated and I don't know why I'm fighting here in the first place. I just want to go swim in calmer waters. Anyone ever been there? Is it just me? When the voice comes in the fog and says, I'm still here. You're still on course. There's not much further to go. Amen. And there isn't much further to go. When you consider life in light of eternity, that our lives are just a, a blip. There, there isn't, this isn't even an ocean that I'm, I'm swimming in. It's not even a pond. It's a, it's a drop. It is a, a, a tiny affliction, a vapor to gain surpassing glory. This water is not my home. Amen. What amazes me about Florence's story and how it relates to, to our lives, to my life, is that the swimmer didn't, she wasn't able to see the shore or even the boats that were with her for that matter. But because of the fog, she had lost sight of them. But they were still there. She couldn't see her mother or her coach, but her mother was still there. She couldn't see the shore, but the shore was still there. It hadn't moved. You may have lost sight. You may be surrounded by fog, but your Father in heaven sees you clearly, and He is still there, and He has set the mark of the prize of the high calling, and it is still there. Satan is your enemy, and he wants to steal your joy, to kill your faith, and he wants to destroy your hope. If he has figured out that, that he can surround you with enough fog and make the waves crash against you enough to get your eyes off the prize, he may just succeed. Amen. 2 Corinthians 
4, verse 3 and 4 says, But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan blinds your mind so that you cannot see the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings a fog so thick that you cannot see the sun. You ever seen a fog that thick? That's a thick fog. We've had them. And I wonder, I marvel at that. When it's, it's broad daylight, the fog is so thick, you can't even see the sun. Amen. When Peter got out of the boat to walk on water to go to Jesus, you know the story. As long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was okay. But when his focus shifted, he began to sink. Satan wants to arrest your attention. He wants to blind you in the fog so that you cannot see the light of the glory that awaits you. That's why I believe that it's important for us to have a clear and appropriate view of what we're struggling for. So that even when I can't see it, when I can't see the shore, I have a very clear, true, solid, secure view of it. God has packed so much treasure in this word that will describe what awaits those who don't give up. Amen. Amen. Those who keep going to the end, who walk by faith and not by sight. And the enemy, the deceiver, has done everything he can to put that cloud, to cloud that view. Like giving you a view of heaven that is not very appealing. I think we are plagued by wrong views of what our end game is. Ask people, what do you think we're going to do in heaven? They don't have an answer for you. You know, if I grew up learning in Sunday school that heaven was going to be a disembodied experience where you float, no one wants to grow up and be a ghost. Who wants to do that? That is not appealing to anybody. And heaven is amazing. The enemy wants to destroy everything. Cloud our view. He will cast doubt on God and cast doubt on heaven. Revelation 13, 6 said this is, what he even, this is what he opens his mouth for. He opens his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That's his dwelling place. He wants to say bad things to make you think bad things about the place that you're going so that you don't want to go there. So that it's, not, it's not a joy. You're driven out of fear and not, and not, not joy. If he, he wants you to see, if he can destroy the reward in your mind, he can destroy your hope of ever attaining it. This whole message, you have an enemy, and his, one of his main weapons against you is deceit. Amen. He wants to trick you into thinking that your goal, your prize, is something lesser than what it is. He doesn't want you excited about going to heaven. I wasn't growing up. I'm, I don't want to go to heaven. I, I want to be on earth as long as I can because I know this. I know this. I want to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And, and now I'm thinking, wow, I just, let me, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Those are great, but come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. So coming up very soon, maybe in the next week, I'm not sure yet, um, we're going to be looking at heaven. Try to get a clear picture of that great and glorious prize. Amen. I want to clear away the fog so that you can see the shore. And keep going. Keep going. 
Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. If you keep going, if you keep going. So to that end, I just put, a, put this out there to you. Um, do it quickly because I, I'm, I'm prepping. But if you have questions about heaven, if it's, a big, if it's a, like a nebulous concept for you and you, you want to see those addressed, I'd be happy to try to address them. So get them to me. And I'll work them into to what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. But we've got to have a solid, secure view of the end game so that we know what motivates us, Amen. so we can see the shore. Also, so that when, when I tell you this is what the Word says that you need to do in order to get there, you look at there as more valuable than what you have to give up to get there. And I don't think many Christians have that high a view of where we're going. Maybe not all of you. Maybe I'm talking to the choir. I don't know. I just know that some of the things I've discovered in my adult life about where we're going and what, what awaits us in heaven have surprised me. Because my thoughts about it growing up were always off. And when you find motivation in joy and not out of fear, man, that's power to do. That's power <laughs> and freedom to live right. All right? So if you have questions about it, get them to me. And we'll try to address him. You have an enemy. He is after you. He wants to defeat you. And he will do it by diminishing your view of what's, what you're fighting for. Don't let him do that. Heaven is a great and glorious place. We're going to discover that and explore that over the next few weeks, if the Lord's willing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word once again. I pray that it is light and life to us. Uh, you are a holy God. And uh, help us to surrender and submit ourselves up under your word. Help us to understand clearly what it is that you have waiting for us. Help us to be vigilant and sober against the wiles of the devil so that we can recognize the deceit when he brings it, Father. That whatever this world has to offer is nothing compared to what you have for us in the hereafter. Father, we love you. We thank you for sending your son, that he was born of a virgin Mary, that he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, and that he was resurrected on the third day, and he sits at your right hand, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you for the Jesus that you have sent us, our Savior and our best friend. God, I've sent us away from this place. Help us have a great time with our families in joy and celebration of the birth of our Savior, and bring us back safely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.